Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you especially for um, this passage from Ecclesiastes this morning that is full of deep, holy wisdom. Pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our minds to understand your word and our hearts to embrace you, our true God. Please bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, The first house that I ever bought is the one that I live in now. And this summer marks seven years of owning it. Uh, When we bought it, it was a major fixer-upper. It was an as-is sale, and it certainly was as-is. Our house needed two new bathrooms, a new kitchen, new AC, foundation reinforcement, you name it. But as first-time homeowners, we popped the corks on the champagne, and we set about fixing it up with gusto, just like Chip and Joe. We had big plans, both for the inside and the outside. But the energy, not to mention the time and the money, started to wane long before those plans were accomplished. So we got our house into a livable state, and then we pretty much set down our tools and settled in there. And we still make improvements here and there, and we keep up the good fight against the bugs inside and the weeds outside. Uh, But most of the time and energy that we need to accomplish our actual vision now gets sucked away in calling out plumbers for blocked drains, replacing broken water heaters, spraying for mold, reinforcing sagging floorboards, and all manner of other maintenance tasks. Home ownership, as our friend Liz Wilkins has said, is a dream full of nightmares. Uh, We often end up crying out in the words of Ecclesiastes 1, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And so we have arrived by our own route and from our own experience at the same conclusion as Solomon the preacher, who peeled back the layers of human existence under the sun and found at its core futility, frustration, and vanity. Maybe it's comforting to know that this is nothing new and that it happens to kings just as much as to ordinary people. So we've heard two excellent sermons on Ecclesiastes so far this summer from Taylor on chapter one, where we heard Solomon's thesis on the inescapable meaninglessness of human life under the sun. And then from Michael last week on chapter two, where Solomon conducted a science experiment on himself, on his own heart, to try to find something that would satisfy his heart's hunger for eternity, for lasting meaning and purpose. But nothing did. So today we arrive at chapter 3, where Solomon moves out of the realm of science, of data gathering and hypothesis testing, and into the realm of philosophy, of premises, reason, and logic. In ancient times, science and philosophy were a married couple together called wisdom, and it was a strong partnership. In our day, that marriage has gotten divorced, and that has been very much to the hurt of both. But Catholic philosopher Peter Kraft, who is, in my view, the greatest living philosopher, says that Ecclesiastes is the only book of pure philosophy in the Bible, and he calls it the greatest of all books of philosophy. He quotes an American novelist called Thomas Wolfe, who went even further. Thomas Wolfe wrote, I am not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could only say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known 
and the wisdom expressed in it is the most lasting and profound. So please open your Bibles to page 554, and today we have the great pleasure of diving into this book at chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, page 554. So here in Ecclesiastes 3, we find the philosophy of time and eternity. Verses 1 through 8 are all about time. There is a time for every matter under heaven. And verses 9 through 15 are about eternity. God is eternal, and he has put eternity into the hearts of men and women. So we're going to focus on these two sections of this chapter this morning. First, time, or what it means for us to live in time. Second, eternity, and why it is that we long for eternity. And third, the gospel of Jesus, and how it reconciles time and eternity. So first, let's think about time from verses 1 through 8. Solomon writes, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And from these words, for season and time, we should understand that the preacher means a right season, an appointed time. Some of you know the Greek word kairos, which lends its name to a prison ministry. Uh, It means an appointed time, and it's exactly the same idea in the Hebrew here. It's a time that affects life on earth, but it's a time ordained in heaven. The preacher then explains his point using a list of 14 examples. Rather than give us a tedious explanation of his thesis that we might disagree with, he just shows it to us in a way that makes intuitive sense. And his examples sketch out the pattern of how this works. On Wednesday night, when we studied this passage at Bible study, we spent a good bit of time on, the, uh, on these uh, verses, and we were discerning the patterns of this list. What's here on the list? What's missing? How does it develop? How does it flow? What are the patterns, and where are they broken? So first, and most obviously, Solomon lift, lists out here pairs of opposites. Be born and die, plant and pluck up, kill and heal. Second, for each of the pairs, there's a side that we would call positive and a side we would call negative. So being born is good, dying is bad, war is bad, peace is good. But we couldn't find any discernible logic behind whether the good side of the equation or the bad side is stated first. Third, the pairs of opposites we found are also themselves grouped into pairs. They're in pairs of pairs. And on Wednesday night, we went through this verse by verse. So in verse 2, human or animal birth and death is partnered with plant birth and death. In verse 3, human or animal killing and healing is partnered with architectural breaking down or building up. In verse 4, private weeping and laughing is partnered with public mourning and dancing. Verse 5 was a bit less obvious. We needed to pick this apart a bit. Uh, It says a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones together. We remember from biblical history and archaeology that the countryside around Jerusalem is very rocky. So before you can grow any crops in the land, you undertook the painstaking task of clearing your field of stones. And many of those stones would then be gathered together to build your home and your barns and your walls. Very little in that country was ever built of wood because there wasn't much wood around. It was all stone. During wartime, an invading army would destroy their enemy's agriculture by breaking down their stone structures 
and scattering those stones all over their fields to make their farmland useless again. So this, then, is an image of settling in the land or of shunning a piece of land. And it partners in the second half of verse 5 with embracing a person or an idea or shunning them, pushing them away. In verse 6, choosing whether or not to seek something you once had and accidentally lost is partnered with choosing whether or not to keep hold of something you currently have. Verse 7 deals with situations of grief. In Hebrew culture, clothes were torn in an act of grief, and then they were repaired once the grief was passed. And the second half of verse 7 considers a person's response to a friend in grief, when to keep silence, as Job's friends wisely did for seven days, or when to speak. And finally, in verse 8, personal love or hatred is partnered with national war or peace. So the examples are not only in pairs of opposites, but also arranged into pairs of pairs. The whole set begins and ends with big momentous events, life and death, war and peace, and in between are the ordinary, everyday moments of human lives, weeping and laughing, finding and losing. The very first item in the set is birth, the beginning, and the last item is peace, shalom, the ultimate desired end. So overall, it describes a fully-orbed, multicolored human life with its ups and downs, full of daily events, both momentous and humdrum. But the whole set contains only the things for which there is a right time. Missing from this set entirely are things that are always morally wrong. Solomon does not say there's a time for sinning or for lying or for unbelief or for turning aside to other gods. This is a set of things for which there is a right time under heaven. These are all actions God himself might take, indeed has taken, and that he might command his people to take. We should see God himself as the primary actor in all these examples. God is the one appointing the right time for each thing. God himself brings it about. Humans, then, are captive to God's will in all these matters. We might keep in step with God and follow the flow of his appointed times, or we might resist him and act inappropriately to the season, but we can't change the season or rebel against it with any effectiveness. It is what God says it is. And so, Solomon's words here are prone to produce in us an emotional reaction, either of hope or of despair. Do we rejoice that wars will inevitably end in peace, that torn things will be sewn up and broken things rebuilt? Or, on the other hand, do we despair that all born things will die, sought things will be lost, and loved things hated? Both are equally true in this life under the sun. Time does and undoes every work. It makes and unmakes every creature. It brings to pass every conceivable outcome. And therefore, it thwarts alike all the constructive plans of man and the destructive plans of Satan. In verse 17, Solomon concludes, there is a time for every matter and every work, which means positively, in verse 11, that God has made everything beautiful in its time, but also negatively, in verse 9, what gain has the worker from all his toil? The answer is none, for time undoes everything we do, and then it unmakes us. You can start to see why this book was on the chopping block 
to be cut out of the canon of Scripture in the first century. These are dangerous words. It's not safe for people to think this way or to write this way unless we have some sort of answer to this problem. We run the risk of madness. And some philosophers have been driven mad. So let's turn now to the second section of the passage, verses 9 through 15, and think about eternity. God is not captive to time as we are. God exists out of time in eternity. And in fact, it is God that has created time and has bound us up in it. So Ecclesiastes takes a different perspective on God than any other book of the Bible. God himself speaks not a single word in this book. And that's rare in scripture. Not only does God not speak directly in this book, but God's past words to Abraham, Moses, and the prophets are essentially ignored. That's a major reason that it almost lost its place in the canon of Scripture. Divine revelation of the person of God is excluded from this book. Although Solomon certainly knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he chose not to know God personally for the purpose of this philosophical journey. Instead, he reasoned from the mere facts under the sun from the universal data available to every human eye, heart, and mind, with or without the gift of divine revelation. In Peter Crave's words, Solomon takes a photograph of human life with a camera that has no flashbulb of faith attached to it, just what earthly eyes can see. And perhaps that's why modern people with no faith in God tend to still really love this book. And it speaks to them more than any other book in the Bible, because it doesn't depend on divine revelation. And yet this book still has God very much in it, doesn't it? Solomon, even without a flashbulb of faith, still sees God very clearly, merely from the human evidence. He still sees God's eternal power and divine nature, just in the stubborn fact of our captivity in time, paired with our longing for eternity. He reasons What can that mean other than that God is eternal and he has set us in time? So then, what is God's eternity like? What does eternity mean? Verses 14 and 15 describe it. Solomon says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pause and unpack these mysterious statements. We often think of our unfolding existence in time as a line. It has a beginning and it has an end and we make sure and steady progress along the line, never speeding up or slowing down and never stopping or going backward. When we learn history in school and we think about the events of the past, we often find it very helpful to display them on a line, a historical timeline, because that's the way time works in our experience. So then when we hear words like eternal or everlasting or forever, what we sometimes imagine is that line that we are on being stretched back and back and back so that it has no beginning and on and on and on so it has no end. And that makes us feel rather strange and disturbed. That's how we imagine eternity. But that is, in fact, not a helpful way to think about eternity. Instead, a much better idea is to think about a garden hose emptying water into a swimming pool. 
The water in the hose moves along in a, uh, in a line at a steady speed, much like we move forward through time. But then it emerges out into the pool, out into a wide space where it still moves around, but now in swirls and eddies and unpredictable currents. If in your mind you shrink the three-dimensional hose down to just one dimension, so it is just a line, and place that line entirely inside the swimming pool, now we have a visual image of our time within God's eternity. That one-dimensional hose line could be infinitely long and still fit within the bounds of the three-dimensional pool. So eternity does not mean time elongated. Eternity is a space that's outside of the bounds and rules of time altogether. In Solomon's words, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. That's nonsense if we're thinking from the perspective of time. But from the perspective of eternity, all points in time are equally accessible. So God is as much present to us here and now as he is to the first humans on earth and the last humans on earth. He is not captive in time the way we are. And that's one way of explaining why, in verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. Solomon concludes at the end of 15 that God, from his seat in eternity, deliberately recycles events and actions in time. He says, God seeks what has been driven away. Meaning, I think, what has been driven away into the past. God seeks it. He finds it, he puts it back into the timeline again in a sort of endless recycling program. Why? So that creation would be subjected to futility. Deliberately so that Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 would be true, that there is nothing new under the sun. So that the only new things to be introduced to the timeline would be God's own mighty acts. Creation, covenant, Incarnation, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, judgment, recreation. Behold, I make all things new, says the Lord. The scholars of Ecclesiastes then tend to agree that our current placement in time is overall a burden to us. It is a prison from which we long to escape. Daniel J. Estes wrote, God sovereignly places humans on the treadmill of life, so they cry out for something better. Between the longing for eternity and our bondage to time, there is a divinely given dissonance. That's what Solomon means when he says that God has put eternity into man's heart. A theologian called Canaday described it this way, the eternity which God has put into the hearts of men is a certain inquisitiveness and yearning after purpose. It is a compulsive drive, a deep-seated desire to appreciate order and beauty arising because man is made in the image of God. It is an impulse to press beyond the limits which the present world circumscribes about man in order to escape the bondage which holds him in the incessant cycle of the seasons. That's what it means to have eternity written in our hearts. So Solomon arrives at a pretty unhappy place in this chapter, and I want to take us into the New Testament to ask finally, how does the gospel of Jesus solve this problem? How does it reconcile time with eternity? Because it does do it, and it does it very powerfully in two ways. First, through the repeated promise of Jesus to his followers of eternal life. We remember, right, that that was his promise. We've been studying John's gospel together. 
let's review some of the ways that uh, Jesus promises this in the Gospel of John. First to Nicodemus in John 3.16. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life, yeah. To the Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To his disciples in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And once more, again, in John 6, 27, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And on and on, many, many more times. Now, we understand that the promise of eternal life is not just to stretch out our present timeline on and on forever. It's a very different kind of promise of a different kind of life. He means a life in eternity, an escape from the repetitive prison of time. And so he answers the painful cry of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Then second, and connected with this, is the promise of Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians that we heard read earlier. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, where Paul says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Surely, surely Paul had Ecclesiastes in his head when he wrote this. He is answering, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and he responds with something that is not in vain, and that is all work, all toil and labor that is dedicated to the Lord Jesus. What Paul says is that that work is transformed by Jesus to be a work of eternity and not a work of vanity. So then, I might build a house in the name of my Lord Jesus, and maybe one day that house itself will collapse and return to dust. But my work in building it will not be lost, because the gift of worship and service stands forever. Or, I may labor to raise a child in wisdom and in faith, whose life is then tragically cut short, and all my investment is lost. But my work for the Lord is not lost. It stands for eternity as a gift given to and received by Jesus. This is a blessed hope. This hope of leaving the futility of the world's treadmill should inspire us. So first, there are some of you here today who are skeptical about God or faith who don't really know what you believe or who to side with. I hope you're out there listening, here in person or online. We're very glad to have you with us. You honor us with your presence, and you've honored me by listening to what I have to say. And I do believe that this word is for you too. Why did Solomon, who knew God personally, choose to exclude that knowledge from Ecclesiastes? Why did he strip away all the data that came from divine revelation and just look at the problem from a human perspective under the sun? Was it not for you? In order to come and find you so that he could meet you where you are, 
not requiring any kind of belief or faith experience that you don't already have. Just the evidence that we all see and the logic we can all understand. I hope you enjoyed his philosophy today and appreciated its honesty and its beauty, as have so many others before us, believers and unbelievers alike. But I also hope that it sticks with you. I hope it's made you think, do you recognize the repetitiveness of your own life in what Solomon says? Do you jive with his sense of frustration and futility and the sheer meaninglessness of it all? At the same time, do you long for something more, a deeper sense of purpose to your existence, what Solomon calls the sense of eternity embedded in your heart? Does that ring true for you as well? And then there's a third piece of data Solomon gives us in these verses, that God's gift to humanity in the midst of all this frustration is the gift of enjoyment, to eat and drink and find pleasure in our toil, verse 13. This, he says, is God's gift to man. Do you experience that too? That life does have an intrinsic frustration. You can't make progress and you long for something deeper. And yet, you keep going because it's not all bad. <laughs> there are beautiful, enjoyable parts too. And those are enough to ease the pain of our present frustration and keep us from total despair, at least for most of us. Solomon concludes that God set it all up this way deliberately. Why? So that we would seek him. And the mistake, Solomon would say, would be to focus on the enjoyable parts and ignore our longing for purpose. What happens then? Well, then we miss out on eternity. We live lives that are really, truly, actually meaningless. They mean nothing. We die. They shovel a bit of dirt on our faces. It all means nothing. It comes to nothing. It will not be remembered a hundred years hence by anybody. But there's an alternative. And it's offered to everyone, no matter what we've done, and that is to seek God now while we're in the land of the living and to hide ourselves in God. To offer him the little piece that we have that we're sure to lose in exchange for a share in his eternity. He is a generous God and he loves to give. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And God gives even to the person who most hates him the daily gift of enjoying their food and drink and work. How much more will he give to the person who loves him? If our imprisonment in time is as full of pleasures and of marvels as it is, how wondrous will eternity be? Solomon calls you to seek more from your life than just a little bit of pleasure before you die. You were made for so much more. So come home to your heavenly Father and receive it. And to those of you who have already received this gift, one of his great gifts to you is the opportunity now for your labor and your toil to no longer be in vain. If it's done for Jesus, it will stand forever. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So are you laboring for Jesus or for yourself? Are you going to the office only to build your own name and your own bank account? Are you coming home only to feed your own belly and amuse yourself? Are you improving your property for your own pleasure only? If so, then it's nothing but waste. It's all going to burn. It accomplishes nothing. And it's a special waste of your life when you have the God-given opportunity to make your time count for something. The work that Jesus wants to see is love, active love 
care for others. Generosity, hospitality, a listening ear, an encouraging tongue, feet that cross borders to bring good news. We know what work it is that's going to last forever, so let's get busy doing it and not be distracted by running and running on the hamster wheel. I want to close with some wise words from one of our teens on Wednesday. This is what Dashiell shared with the group. He came to realize that everything that's eternal is good. And also, everything good is eternal. Everything evil is temporary. Wicked things are what is passing away. And this is why we long to be done with time and to live only in eternity. <laughs> Not a good observation. And this is what our Savior has promised us, even eternal life. So let's spend whatever time we have in time with an eye kept firmly on eternity.